Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B, SaaS, and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics at Major Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Chris Golick, the founder and CEO of Channel 99, and formerly the founder and CEO of Demandbase. We'll be covering three main topic areas with Chris today. First, the evolution of B2B marketing over the last 10 years. What's changed? What remains the same? Second, how B2B marketers can become more metrics-informed and financial outcome-centric and their measurements and their behavior. And third, why chief marketing officers and chief financial officers need to speak the same language. Hey, Chris, take a moment to give a brief background of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ray. It's great to be here and uh, really excited to have this conversation. Yeah, so my background, you know, it's more engineering. I worked in supply chain for a while uh, with GE and then started a software company in supply chain in the mid 90s. And when the internet was just taking off, everything was B2C. And then supply chain became sexy and supply base had a nice exit in 2000. And then I, I created Demand Base 2006 to really help companies manage the supply chain between marketing and sales. And DemandBase is, is now a large provider leading the, the account-based marketing segment. And I left there recently and uh, have started a new venture, Channel 99, to really take this whole management and measurement of vendors and suppliers and marketing to a whole new level. Well, let's use as a foundation our opportunity to talk about marketing going forward with the last 10 years, you had a front row seat being the CEO of Demandbase. How have you seen B2B marketing evolve and even change over the past few years? It's a great question, right? I, I kind of look at B2B marketing going through three major phases. The first phase was there was no B2B marketing technology up until about 2005. The first, first uh, association of B2B marketing was really marketing automation, right? And the metrics was more clicks, more leads, more email. And really, that was really a volume-driven game. The next phase was really account-based marketing, where demand base was created to really focus on quality. Volume is great, but sales teams don't care about the volume unless it's the right account, right? And so the next wave of ABM that really kind of took hold, I'd say in 2010, 2015, was really around quality. And so as we go into this next phase, I think it's really about efficiency. What's the financial performance of marketing? What am I spending to generate this opportunity? And how does it compare to the, the sector? Wow, you just opened up Pandora's box for me. And it's yeah. really a passion of mine. We recently conducted some benchmarking research with Lean Data, Clearbit, and Atrium HQ, and Modern Sales Pros. And we were trying to figure out how people are measuring the return on investment of their marketing spend. And Chris, we, we had 490 SaaS B2B companies participate. And I was shocked about this. 
but 19%, only 19% said that they're actually calculating the ROI of marketing by creating a marketing CAC ratio. So for every dollar of marketing that I spend, how many dollars of qualified pipeline am I generating and how many dollars of new customer revenue am I generating? Does that surprise you? Because I thought we all said that B2B marketers need to become more like B2C performance marketers and it's not happening. Yeah, no, it doesn't surprise me only because that's why I've started Channel 99 to, to fix that. And it is amazing that that is still happening uh, out there today. So I'm excited about the opportunity there. And there is just a tremendous amount of inefficiency in B2B marketing. The challenge for marketers, it's just hard to expose it and fix it. Wait a minute, you're telling me that all this talk about attribution, first touch, last touch, multi-touch, that the talk isn't resulting in true ROI insights to marketing spend? <laughs> I am telling you that. And with confidence, I can tell you, first touch is wrong, last touch is wrong, multi-touch is probably wrong because most of the traffic coming to a B2B site is not properly attributed to the right channel. Interesting. We're going to double click on that in a minute. But before I get into marketing attribution, because I don't want to spend 30 minutes on that, you were right in the middle of two mega trends for B2B marketers, account-based marketing, right? A more strategic approach to engaging and closing new customers and intent data to be able to look at buyer intent. Tell me, and honestly, did those two kind of mega trends and initiatives result in increased ROI for B2B marketing spend? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a little bit biased, of course, around kind of ABM because, you know, we have a lot of success points in there. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, Demandbase and Sixth Sense and other companies have been very, very successful at building their businesses with very large enterprises that are best in class at marketing. And I think the intent data has really helped um, those. Now, I will I will say that having the intent data is a little bit harder to quantify, in my, my opinion, but absolutely being able to prioritize activities based on the intent of companies and buyers is really critical. And in ABM, in its simplest form, is just about focusing your marketing dollars on the accounts your sales team should be selling to. Sounds so simple, and when I talk to sales, they always go, well, where are they focusing their dollars if they're not focused on that? <laughs> uh, so it's it's pretty interesting. So I, I hope to expose a lot of that and bring a lot of you know measurement and efficacy to looking at channels and vendors in a different way, a more common language, I should put it. I like that. And I like the fact that part of your premise is the common language between B2B marketers and their financial partners. But before we kind of double click on that one, let me back up. The reason that I initially created RevOps Squared was I thought by having a more metric-centric orientation of the go-to-market teams, marketing, sales, and customer success, and that they actually would share some of the goals towards those common metrics. And yeah, it could start with pipeline and new ARR growth, but maybe it was also the efficiency of customer acquisition, like the CAC payback period, or the efficiency of not only closing a customer, but retaining and growing through things like net dollar retention. So tell me this, do you think go-to-market teams really are using metrics as a way to align themselves, or is most people still focused on their departmental metrics? You know, unfortunately, I think it's too focused on departmental metrics, right? If I'm the finance person, I really don't care about campaigns and MQLs and CPC and CPM. I care about 
cost per opportunity, close rate, the dollar efficiency of generating pipe and CAC, the variable marketing spend. And these things are all connected. But unfortunately, I think some of the challenges lie in how marketers are measured. But let's double click on that because it's not the CEO and maybe the CFO and CFO's goal. I mean, responsibility to help establish what are the performance metrics that they're going to hold the CMO accountable for? Well, absolutely. Like the challenge is, is <laughs> the CFO has a, a budget that they give to marketing and they want to make sure you you hit the pipeline number, you know, effectively. And the challenge is, is a lot of times that there's overspending and the pipeline number isn't hit. So the company's at risk even before the sales team starts selling. There are common metrics, of course. Unfortunately, most marketing teams are not measured on the cost it takes to generate an opportunity or the pipeline acquisition cost, which is essentially the same thing. There's just too many people that are still measured on volume of MQLs and the cost per MQL. And they do unnatural things to drive those numbers up and don't appreciate when you do the waterfall out to an opportunity. You know, I just spent $70,000 in variable marketing spend to acquire this customer. But it's not visible anywhere. You have to piece it together from different systems, and it just doesn't happen. Okay, so Chris, it sounds like you have a premise that the reason marketing aren't being measured by the return on investment from outcomes, qualified pipeline and customer ARR, is more of a systemic and systems issue than a cultural kind of the ethos of marketing executives? Of course, it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of both. And let's go back to the original question, you know, volume, quality, dollar efficiency. In the world of the volume, it's like, how many visits can I generate? And what's my cost per visit? In the quality era, it's like, how many visits from my target accounts did I generate? And then what did I pay for that? And then that's a much easier bridge into opportunity cost. And I've done some of the math with, you know, high volumes of visits to B2B websites. And it's it's really amazing when you look at dollar per quality visit versus just dollar per visit. I mean, they can be nine times different, those metrics. And it's hard to, you know, people get enamored with just looking at number of clicks and web traffic versus what percentage is coming from my target market. And, you know, in our, we just rolled out a free mobile app and it shows you specifically what percentage of your traffic by channel is coming from your your target markets. And people are always underwhelmed that it's not uncommon for it to be around 15 to 20%. In some cases, I, I see a lot of companies with it as low as 5%. And the CMOs are always underwhelmed. Like, why are we marketing to people that will never buy our products? And Chris, so this includes traffic from unknown or anonymous first-time visitors to your website? Yeah, most, as you know, most most traffic is unknown, right? Until you can kind of reveal the account and the industry and size of company. I, I guess I typically try not to do vendor promotions here on the Metrics of Major podcast, but can you tell me a little bit about the basic premise of Channel 99, not the business value, but how you can actually provide that visibility and insight into that anonymous traffic all the way through to generating revenue? Yeah, so at a high level, you know, the company is founded to be, you know, really the source of truth in B2B marketing measurement. 
and really tying together finance and marketing teams on what really matters. The, the first product that we rolled out that I mentioned is the free mobile app. It connects to your website and you set up what markets and target accounts you, you sell into. And we've built a network of identification technology providers like Demandbase and Clearbit and others where we can look at inbound traffic and identify the company and then the associated industry and see how well that aligns to your TAM, right? And this is all happening in real time. And then we we map it to the right channels and vendors, and then it gives you clear transparency on what's working uh, and what what's not. And this is just the free mobile app. What's coming is now let's integrate vendor spend data and pipeline data and so ultimately what you're doing is you're connecting all the digital footprints of what your buying audience is doing with what you're spending with what the business outcomes are in your pipeline right so on the front end of the process this provides the intelligence of how you're going to route that lead because some leads are of much higher value. So maybe that goes to that strategic account executive responsible for that account. Maybe other leads go to your outbound SDR to do more of a, maybe a little bit more delayed follow-up, something like that. Yeah, but I, I would just caveat that with, you know, there are a lot of good sales intelligence and ABM companies that do that type of routing and work. That's not our intent. Our intent's more you know, being unbiased and staying kind of above the fold so that you can look at all your different vendors, whether that's Google and paid search or LinkedIn paid social or demand base or six cents or whatever it is, and measure everybody on a level playing field. That's again, volume, quality, dollar efficiency, business outcome based. So this sounds like you need to be able to ingest financial data, expense data, right? From the financial management platform. But then there's also the challenge of how do you allocate costs of those resources, especially your human resources that may be doing multiple things. So you have a vice president of demand gen and she's got four or five people. How do you allocate the expense to a specific program or a specific category to really get that level of granularity insight into ROI? Yeah, this is going to be a journey, <laughs> of course. Um, I think step one is let's look at the the variable discretionary spend, the program spend, and let's start there, right? And I can guarantee you it will be eye-opening for most marketers and finance people on what the dollar efficiency is of LinkedIn and paid social versus paid search in Google. Like you think you might be paying $3 a click, but when only 2% of the clicks are from your target audience, is that really 98% inefficient? Yep. <laughs> so it was interesting. We did some benchmarking, um, as I mentioned, with lean data. And the other thing, another question we ask is what is your cost per lead from organic search versus paid search? And we even asked organic social versus paid social. So my question is, and we didn't ask this question because it was a self-service survey. It wasn't in-depth, you know, one-to-one -one research. How do you really measure the cost of organic search? It's hard because it's, you know, it's something you do. Many companies outsource to some type of agency. And so my suggestion to customers, if you're spending, let's say, 10K a month with an agency or 20K and, you know, dedicate half, half of that 
outside spend to SEO and the other half to SEM. But then you have the cost per click, of course, on the SEM side. So organic search is going to absolutely generate the most volume. But the percentage of those visits coming from your target accounts is really low versus if you're doing paid social campaigns in LinkedIn, which can be really targeted, you might find that you're generating much more efficient traffic at much lower cost on something like LinkedIn or a Sixth Sense than you are through SEO. It's it's really fascinating when you you layer on that level of quality and then add in the spend data. It's very revealing what's working, what's not working. This is very interesting because I'm not an, an expert at SEO at all, but I always wondered why we don't invest more time, resource, and SEO in B2B marketing companies. And I always thought it was, well, part of it is it was harder to track the cost, but you're saying the quality of those leads generated from SEO often is much lower. That's interesting. Oh, yeah, it is. However, I will say that like, if you get a really good SEO, SEM firm that truly understands your business and is not just trying to generate the volume, and they're really focused on the quality, which which most aren't because they don't they're not able to measure the quality. <laughs> you can really you know sharpen your SEO, improve the quality, but you got to be able to measure it before you can improve it. And you know a lot of outside firms, if they're not really understanding your business and the phrases, and they're just going by generating volume, which feels good to everybody, <laughs> but it's not really the best outcome for a B two B company. So. Channel 99, a platform that allows the head of marketing or marketing and finance to share insights into data, make more metrics or data-driven decisions. Who's the primary buyer of it? Is it going to be the head of marketing who really wants that insight to make smarter future decisions? Or is it the CFOs like, I just need to get my hands on the efficiency of our marketing spend from an ROI perspective? And you can't say both because... I know both will be involved, but is there an entry point that you really want to go into first? Well, I think they're both influencers for sure. But the the person that's going to set up and make sure that it's, you know, TAM is set up properly, all that is probably the marketing ops person or the rev ops person. Oh, it's marketing ops. You know, you mentioned to me as we were kind of preparing for this that you had a lot more customers and I won't say the number unless you want to share it. But what are the two or three kind of biggest pieces of feedback or lessons that you've learned about how it's really being used and the insights that it's surfacing. Yeah, so we have, you know, we just launched, but we have probably 60, 70 companies live now. And within the product there, you can see industry averages on percent coming from by channel, percent coming from TAM. So there's there's a level of benchmarking that's valuable and interesting. So the most surprising thing to me is like companies that I thought would have much higher success in their ability to target their TAM, <laughs> they some of them underperformed where some smaller businesses that are really laser focused on a singular vertical industry are actually doing quite well because they are very, very focused on just a single industry. That's surprising to me. And you know, the sample size is still pretty low, but I, I hope because it is a free mobile app, anybody can get started and it just takes a few minutes. You know, I hope to have a couple thousand companies and it'll be much more revealing when we can benchmark companies that have very similar target audiences. So like, I want to see the numbers for companies like me or companies like who I'm trying to target. Right. 
when you say companies like me, is that going to be based upon solution size, solution category, target customer segment? What are the attributes you think you want to cohort those benchmarks in? You know, eventually multiple variables, but you know, initially it'll be the types of companies I'm trying to target. And then you can add in with my, you know, same similar ASP. And then it could also be for a company of my size or my industry. You've mentioned that you're leading with the mobile app and it's very simple to get going. And my head says, man, you're trying to capture so many complex things when you're going all the way to ROI on customer acquisition dollars generated, right? I know that's kind of a phased approach, but are you telling me that you're using a product-led growth kind of motion to basically create the leads for your follow-on products? That's absolutely right. It's a variation of PLG, but we wanted a way to really simplify and accelerate customer adoption. And so as we build this base of companies and we roll out our you know, SaaS platform early next year, we'll have hopefully a thousand companies to go sell to because they'll, we'll already be connected into their website and have data to show them in the product. Way easier to sell than just showing a demo with fake data. Well. I wasn't going to double click into product like growth, but here we are. So I've got to do it. I am intrigued by the profile of the salespeople you think you're going to need where you're going to have a thousand or two thousand marketers who have already marketing operations people. Is it more of a product Sherpa, product expert that does that outreach? Or is it a more traditional sales persona? I think it will be a sales persona, but it, you know, primarily inside you know i think our solution is going to be you know very easy for people to adopt and we'll have their data so i could see us bringing on sdrs and have them move up into a sales role fairly easy it's not we're not going to be hiring your classic enterprise licensed salesperson i would once again just kind of thinking about this and visioning it i would think the way that those product-led growth customers are using the product the type of volumes they have right, et cetera, that's going to help you segment who you go after first and what the value proposition is. Is that kind of an accurate? That's exactly right. Because, you know, the reality is even with a thousand companies, you know, there's going to be a certain percentage of those that makes sense to go sell to and probably a good size percentage that are just too small that, you know, doesn't make sense for them to invest in, you know, a SaaS solution to measure their marketing because, you know, some companies just aren't spending a lot on digital, but they're intrigued by how did this company find me? Like, how did they come to the site? And so we, we hope to really reveal that in a very easy, consumable way. Because a lot of this stuff, Ray, as you know, is it's really heavy data and spreadsheets and insight. You don't get the insight until you properly visualize the data for them. And so that's the whole idea of when you, you see our, our SaaS app come out, it'll be much more visual than it is going to be spreadsheets. Makes a lot of sense. So we're going to do a pivot here, Chris. And that is you've recently also went through a fundraising process. And I call this the days of cautious capital, right? The amount of capital that VCs and private equity current firms are investing in existing kind of run rate businesses is very low in Q4. Uh, I think it's going to continue to be that in the first half. But on the flip side, some early stage companies who provide a lot of value and don't have the historic valuations to worry at, worry on are finding it almost easier to raise money. I don't know if easier is the right word, but not as difficult. So 
what was your experience in the fundraising process for a product that's going to help drive more efficient, durable revenue? Yeah, well, it's exactly as you described, and it was refreshing and, uh, you know, it was great for timing for us, you know, having raised a lot of money through my journeys at supply base and, and demand base, probably 10 or so rounds. I think I've met every venture firm out there. <laughs> you know, it's always a real, you know, a difficult process, a lot of work and a lot of investment. This new company, I was surprised that there was so much appetite and interest in doing the seed round. And there was even companies talking about pre-seed. And I'm like, well, I don't even know what pre-seed is. I've never heard of it. <laughs> and even early on, you know, the last time I did an A round was back in 2007. And, you know, the hurdle there was high. You had to have a million in revenue. You had to have all these things, these gates you had to get through. And seed rounds weren't really done that often. If they were done, they were just a couple hundred thousand dollars. So when we went out to raise money, I was... You know, I was self-funded. I was kind of building the business, talking to a lot of people, putting out the product strategy. I had to make a decision whether I just wanted to kind of self-fund this through a certain part, get this mobile app out, or do I just go for it and build a nice seed round and be able to hire top talent away from, you know, high-paying jobs. And so my vision is I, I, I kind of laid out there, I'm like, I really want to move at a high velocity with this business because the opportunity is now companies have an appetite and I know a lot of the first people just to go higher. So when I went and talked to some of the people I'm closest to in the venture community, it made perfect sense. And so we, we rolled up a $5 million seed round in uh, late June. We we're able to close it in just a few weeks and get going. And so I went out and I hired who I think is one of the best CMOs and head of sales and head of product. And, you know, we're building out the engineering team and I really want to move quickly because I think time is now for this, this next phase of B2B marketing. Interesting. So you, your primary criteria for raising money now was to accelerate talent acquisition. So when the product's ready, you can accelerate your initial market penetration and growth. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think this is, I don't want to say that this is going to be easier than ABM, but it, creating a technology category is really hard and it takes a lot of patience and it takes a lot of investment. I think this next wave, people get it. Like when I talk to marketers or finance people, they're going to be like, thank God somebody's going after this because we're trying to piece all this stuff together every quarter. And, you know, people get to some of these numbers maybe 20% of the time, as you said, but there's just no, you know, system or standard to doing it. And I think we can do that. We can bring that to companies. Yeah. It sounds like you're not going to need to create the need or help them identify the pain that's already right there in their face. It's just that you can um, address and solve the pain. Let yeah. me ask one last question. You've had two successful early stage companies, right? That have grown significantly, went to an acquisition and an amazing journey at demand base. What are the two or three lessons that you learned in those two previous experiences that's really informed what you're doing now? Because I think a lot of our listeners are first-time founder CEOs. So like, what did Chris learn and what advice can he give me? Yeah, gosh, that's a good question. You know, and this is probably not, it is the right answer. And that is, you know, knowing what not to spend time on. It's all about efficiency of time and quality of people that you hire because the, you know, the assets of a software company, especially early on, are the people. You know, a big market, a great team, you'll find the money. You, you'll move, you'll shift, 
but you have to spend your time in the right places. And a lot of the risk of a software company is also in hiring. And I would also say the flip side of that is you can only get hiring right 85% of the time. So you got to be prepared on that other 15% to, to take action. And because it's not fair to the rest of the team, like if there's a bad hire, you got to take action on it versus letting it linger because it's just very unproductive for the rest of the company. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I, I was looking at your leadership team and there was some commonality there and that's you've worked together before, right? Which is an unfair advantage you have as a multiple time founder CEO. So if you're talking to that first time founder CEO, it's like, I really want to go hire an amazing, whether it's head of product or head of marketing or head of sales. What advice do you give them other than get a great headhunter? Yeah, I do think great headhunters serve a great purpose. In that process, I would always uh, recommend that people do some type of back channel reference because I think you can learn a lot from that. And it's so much easier to do today with tools like LinkedIn and find out who you know in common and, and kind of reach out to those people because you can reveal a lot in those conversations and make better choices. Makes total sense. The other recommendation I give, and I'd love to get your feedback on this, is reach out to successful entrepreneurs, CEOs who have scaled companies, because often the people who were really good at one to five or one to 10, maybe they weren't the right people for 20 to 50 and vice versa. And I find people like you, Chris, are very willing to say, hey, here's two or three people that I've worked with who are really good at that stage. So not to put you on the spot, does that make sense though as a strategy? Yeah, you know, I, I will say, Ray, uh, one of the hardest things to do is as you build the company is scaling each department at the same pace. And you're exactly right. You know, the, the team that goes from zero to 10 is often very different from 10 to 100. And maybe there's more stratifications in there. So you got to be prepared to make, make changes. And a lot of times people don't like the next stage of growth. And sometimes, you know, when you're building a company, people become your friends and it's like a family. So it, the decisions get harder and harder because they become more personal. Yeah, totally agreed. Well, I can't believe our time's coming to an end already, Chris. So let's give our listening audience a chance to get to know you a little bit better on a personal basis. But I do that through three quick questions. So the first is, is there a CEO or a company that you think a B2B SaaS CEO should be following today? Yeah, you know which company I really admired through the years and, you know, the CEO, I really like Gainsight, for, you know, what they've created and and how they've accelerated growth after they got to a certain benchmark. And, you know, the infusion of private equity with Vista really benefited that company. Nick has just done an amazing job and love to hear him speak because he's so genuine and he offers so many great piece of advice, especially when it comes to customer success and, and managing that side of the business. That's a good one, Chris. We actually had Nick on the Metrics Major podcast previously. He also has done something even, I think, even more unique, and that is he has this human-first ethos of his company that says we can be strong performers while still treating people like humans as our first job. So second, what tool, not your own, should every SaaS company be using, especially during the early stages? Wow, that's a great one. You know, I was just introduced to Figma and I had not seen it before. And this summer we were using it to do all of our mock-ups and designs and our product guy overnight turned it into this incredible like interactive demo. And I was like, this product is amazing. And literally like two weeks later, they're acquired for $20 billion by Adobe. And I was really blown away at 
how collaborative and how much easier it made it to innovate, especially in a remote work environment. And so I would say Figma is one that really just came into my attention this year. And there's, of course, you know, the others like, you know, Salesforce, of course, as you start selling. And we're just going through that phase of putting things in place. Well, that's a good one. So last question. A lot of people want to be the next Chris Golick or Nick Meta or you know, I meet Vendoff at Gong. So what advice would you give to a recent college graduate whose vision is, I want to be a B2B SaaS founder and CEO of a successful company? What advice to them right now? You know, I think keep your eyes open and ears open and, and get some good experience. It's interesting with if people are really coin operated and they just want to make money. <laughs> It's about company picking, not just about who's going to pay you the most money. It's about selecting a company where you're going to learn learn the most, right? And I've seen it through the years where people want to leave the company because they want to go pursue another opportunity because they have this higher offer or whatever, but they're going to a company that's just not in a great sector, flat growth, or has you know really horrible glass door ratings. I'm like, are you really sure you want to do that? And they're intrigued by the dollars, but they're making a career mistake. And so in those cases, I do everything to try and keep those people from making kind of what I think is a wrong decision. On the converse of that, if they're going to a really great opportunity, it's like, congratulations, that's awesome. And I feel good that like we help them get to that next opportunity. And that that feels good. So I would just encourage people to kind of maybe join similar companies in, into a space that they're interested in and learn and learn as much as possible. Yeah. yeah, learning is great. And I think learning in a great company where you have great mentors, kind of proven experience. I mean, you and I kind of both were trained at GE back when GE was one of the best management development organizations in the world. And even 30 years later for me, I'm like, God, I'm so glad I had that basis. And I think the same thing, a Gainsight or a Salesforce, et cetera. Man, you could learn so much. It's just great advice, Chris. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, unfortunately, our time's come to an end. So Chris Golick, founder and CEO of Channel 99, thank you so much for being our guest today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And to our listening audience, if you're enjoying the quality of guests we have like Chris and the content that we're creating, you're going to mean the world to us. Go ahead, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. Give us that five-star rating and provide us a review or recommendation on what you enjoyed about the show. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.